Psalms chapter 99. So if you would please meet me in Psalm 99. The text reads like this. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statue that he gave to them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord, our God, is holy. Amen. This past week or so... I have started to develop an interest in the game of chess. Chess, as you probably know, is one of the oldest and most popular board games played by two opponents on a checkerboard with specifically designed pieces of contrasting colors, commonly white and black. Each piece has a specific set of movements that allows for the flow of the game to change drastically by the move of a single piece. I've been really enjoying learning this game, but I must admit that I am pretty bad at chess. (laughs) I'm still learning a lot of the strategies, a lot of the openings, the mid-game, the end game, which makes me just as any other common chess player. But there is one small group of people throughout the world, who have completely mastered the game of chess. These people are, have, hold the title of Grand Master. These are people who have dedicated their lives to playing the game of chess, playing absolutely stunning games where they are thinking and evaluating a number of moves in advance of play, making them the best chess players in the world. Or so it was thought until the year 1997. You see, in 1997, the computer company IBM had finally put their finishing touches on the chess computer known as Deep Blue. You see, this computer was made with the express purpose of being the best chess player possible. It was really put to the test in 1996 when the computer played against the chess world champion, Garry Kasparov. In some of the most astounding games of chess ever played, Kasparov ended up winning this series by a score of four games to two. 
This is when IBM went back to work to fine-tune Deep Blue in preparation for the rematch that they had the following year when they sat down for another series of six games. With the press surrounding this chess table and Kasparov's own mother sitting in the room watching, they played some of the most important games of chess ever played. Kasparov comes out swinging and wins the first game, only to lose the next game to Deep Blue. The next three games ended with draws, putting all the pressure on this final game. With all eyes watching this final game, the opening began with a bang, as Deep Blue sacrificed one of its knights for a measly pawn, a move that to the untrained eye seems like a crazy sacrifice. But for Deep Blue, this would open a lane to a swift victory. Kasparov, a couple of moves later, when he realized his mistake, resigned just after 19 moves of play, ushering in an era where the best chess players were now computers and no longer people. Since this game, chess computers have only improved. They are now so smart that they can win games with only milliseconds of computing time between moves. The best chess players in this world will no longer be humans, but they will always be machines. These computers have been made quite literally in a league of their own. They cannot be compared with others because of how different they are from every other chess player. The Grand Masters, which were thought to be almost unbeatable, had been shown to be imperfect and capable of error. This is similar to how our God stands in comparison to us, his people. Our God, like these computers, is so different from us as people that he is completely in a league of his own. There is no one like him, and there will never be anyone like him. This isn't because God is better at chess than us, but he would always win if he did play with us. Uh, This is because our God is perfect in every way. Each of his attributes could have the adjective of perfect added to it in order to demonstrate how amazing our God is. There is one word that we use to describe God's perfection and, and every bit of his essence as perfect, and that is the word holy. Whenever we hear of the word holiness, Our minds often drift to think of moral purity. Well, this isn't a bad thing to dwell on because, in fact, it is true, God is morally pure, but that is only one single aspect of the word holy. The word holy most literally means set apart. God is separated from everything else around him because of his uniqueness. There is no one who is like him or will ever be like him. God, in other words, is in a league of his own because he is set apart in so many different ways. He's set apart because he has a holy love that isn't marred by selfishness or conceit, 
God is set apart because he has a holy mercy, giving grace to his people for their sins through the sacrifice of his son. God is set apart because of his holy justice, meaning that he judges people fairly and without bias with the goal of bringing true peace to the world. God himself and every part of his character is holy because there is none who are like him. So as we continue working through a selected number of psalms with the express goal of looking to understand more about our God, then if we are going to truly understand who our God is, we must know that God is holy. So this evening, we are going to be walking together through Psalm 99 and looking at three different facets of God's holiness. As I was preparing for this message this evening, I was reading the book Reformed Systematic Theology by Smalley and Beaky, where I came across the perfect outline for this psalm. So if it seems like the quality of this outline is a little better than my normal work, it's because I'm borrowing their words. So tonight we will be looking at three different facets of God's holiness. We will be looking at God's majestic holiness, God's moral holiness, and God's merciful holiness with the express goal of simply seeing that God is holy. Let's start off by looking at the first three verses. It says, The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned above the cherub, upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Now, if you remember from two weeks ago when we studied Psalm 97, our passage for this evening, Psalm 99, starts off in a very similar fashion with the words, the Lord reigns. This is because these psalms are contained in a series of praise psalms with all of them placed next to each other because they are joyfully celebrating the Lord's reign. This collection of psalms, specifically 91 through 99, have unknown authors and we aren't really sure when it was written. But the best guess as to when they were written is sometime during the exilic or post-exilic era for Israel. So the Israelites at this point during the time of its writing had probably been kicked out of their land. Jerusalem had fallen. Their king was no longer on the throne and the temple was destroyed. These psalms then remind us that even though things may look bleak, the Lord is reigning. Why then is the psalmist joyous about the Lord's reign? Well, the psalmist who wrote Psalm 99 is rejoicing because the Lord is holy and because he is reigning over all the earth. These first three verses, as we see here, the psalmist rejoices because of God's majestic holiness. You see, our God is so powerful that when anyone comes near to the presence of God, there is a need to tremble and fall before him. He is sitting on the throne, reigning over all the earth as king. The psalmist, throughout this whole psalm, 
uh, but specifically here, describes the Lord as sitting enthroned upon the cherubim. This is referencing the imagery to the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark itself had a golden slab on which two cherubim with spread wings stood. The belief was then that God's presence dwelt between these two cherubim as the Ark itself was placed within the Holy of Holies inside of the temple. This ark then signified that God had established his kingdom on earth and that the cherubim were there to protect his glory. The psalmist continues by showing how no one can stand up to him. Not only is he great in Zion, but he is exalted over all people as well. There is no one who can come close to having the same power or authority that our God has. And of course, just like we saw saw in Psalm 97 two weeks ago, the holy reign of the Lord brings his people to praise and worship his great and awesome name. God's people do not simply sit there coldly when when knowing about the reign of our king. They cannot help themselves but express their emotions of gratitude and praise for God's holiness. Holy is he. Well, what does it really mean for us to praise someone for their work and for who they are? Let me ask you this simple question to try to paint some sort of mental picture in your head. Have you ever met a celebrity before. Someone that you were nervous to go up to and talk with them simply because of who they are or what they had done. Well, I have been in this situation before with the hymn writer Keith Getty. Back in uni, I was able to volunteer at a charity event that Keith and Kristen Getty were performing at and I had the chance to meet them after the show. Almost as soon as the show was over, I ran to their stand in the back of the church in order to buy a book for them to be able to sign it. I, uh, I, after I bought the book, I saw Keith Getty entered into the lobby and he started chatting with some people around there and I started inching my way towards him with my buddy Will. I was way too shy and timid and was patiently waiting my turn when my friend Will saw the perfect opportunity and before Keith could talk to anybody else, he shoved me right in front of him and I was a complete mess. I was shaking and so nervous because I had not egged myself into figuring out what I was going to say to this man. The embarrassment I felt was astounding just because I had not amped myself up. I could barely get out the words from my mouth when talking to him and was so confused when he complimented me for my accent. (laughs) It threw me off and it was just, it was, it was, it was really, it was really crazy because throughout the the whole ordeal, I was just so nervous to talk to him because of who he was. You see, Keith Getty is responsible for so many of the hymns that we sing here in this church and has been someone that I have always been incredibly grateful for his ministry. That sense of amazement at meeting someone important, like when I met Keith Getty, should only be a fraction 
of what it is to be in the presence of our holy God. You see, our God is majestically holy. And if we did not have the, if we, if we did not have the assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ, we would be incredibly nervous to even approach the throne of God. You see, God is so powerful and holy that in our sin, we could only tremble before him. I mean, look at Moses, one of the holiest men who has ever lived. He couldn't even look upon the face of God or he would have died because of God's majestic holiness. Our God is majestically holy and it should bring us to be excited to know him and to be known by him. The problem is, though, when we start to ignore this feeling of joy and excitement when we praise and worship and are in his presence, we give sin the opportunity to slip into our lives. Worship songs change from something we currently enjoy to something we want to end so we can go home. Time in prayer can, be, can, turn, into, can turn from communion with God to another thing we need to check off our list for that day. Listening to sermons can go, from glowing, can go from growing closer to God to zoning out and planning out what the rest of our weeks are going to look like. Before we know it, we have turned our worship from something we are excited to do into something we have to do. And at that point, our worship becomes dead and performative instead of alive and joyous as it should be. So Christian, my question for you this evening is this, where is your heart in worship? Are you praising God for his majestic holiness? Or are you instead turning off your brain and going through the motions? I know that it can be easy to turn off your brain during a hymn that you don't particularly love, or one that you have heard a million times, or one that you are just utterly unfamiliar with. But instead, I, I implore you to engage in worship. Meditate on the lyrics that are up here on the screen. Think about how amazing our God is and how the hymn is proclaiming this beauty. Don't merely sing and offer up an empty worship to God. Engage in it and adore the one who has given us salvation. We have a majestically holy God who is wholly deserving of our praise. Now let's look back at our psalm and look at the next two verses. Picking, up in, picking back up in verse 4, it says, The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord, our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. At this point in the psalm, our psalmist pivots to then start talking about God's moral holiness. This is one of the major differences of why our God is set apart from everybody else. God is morally perfect. There is no blemish or spot on his righteousness because he himself set up the standard of what righteousness looks like. 
He has created the law, which has shown us what being righteous looks like and has fulfilled that law through his son, Jesus Christ, so that we may be forgiven of our transgressions of this law. This is because our Lord is morally perfect. What this then looks like more practically is that he has, ext- he has established equity, executed justice, and brought righteousness to this world. Our God, being the only morally perfect one to ever exist, stands as the only judge who delivers justice without bias. He looks fairly upon everyone's iniquities and delivers the punishment that each person opposed to God deserves. This justice has been promised to us in scripture as God will come in the last days and deliver his judgment to all who have ever lived, giving to everyone the penalty that they deserve for their transgressions. But what is beautiful beautiful about this is that is not the only thing that he has done. He has also established righteousness in this world through Jacob. Again, we run into another Old Testament reference, this time being Jacob from the book of Genesis. If you do not remember the story of Jacob off the top of your head, let me give you a little review. Jacob was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, who was promised that a great nation would be made of him. This is all the way back in Genesis chapter 22. We then meet Jacob in Genesis chapter 25, not too long after the death of Abraham. Jacob had a bit of a troubled life, fighting with his older brother Esau by taking his older brother's birthright and blessing. Years later, Right before Jacob would reunite with his brother Esau, Jacob would wrestle with God and eventually be blessed by him. In Genesis 35, verses 11 through 12, God says to Jacob, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. You see, God had established the nation of Israel through Jacob, even changing Jacob's name to Israel right after that wrestling match. Through the descendants of Jacob, we would see God meet with his people at Sinai, establish the law that would help Israel to live a righteous life, create judges in order to bring Israel out of their sin, establish kings to lead the nation to God's glory, and prophets to speak on behalf of God. That's why the book of Genesis is called that on the, in the first place, because Genesis, meaning beginning, not, not only details the beginning of our world, but shows us the beginning of the nation of Israel. While God would establish righteousness through Jacob, and he brought the law through Moses, the people of Israel would constantly make, for, make mistakes and choose themselves over God time and time again. God would eventually establish a way, a way to righteousness once and for all through one specific descendant of Jacob. That person being none other than Jesus Christ himself.
God would send his son to the earth to die a substitutionary death in our place so that we may partake in his righteousness. He has firmly established this righteousness which could never waver, giving us access to God, not only to Israel, but to all who believe and call upon his name. We praise God that he has revealed himself to us in this way and showed us what moral holiness looks like. No longer do we have to wonder what is moral and what is immoral. We instead have been given a way to figure out. Uh, We have access to both the word of God right here in the scriptures as well as in the Holy Spirit who guides us, shows us what is right and convicts us of what is wrong. Now, when our culture throws at us moral and political issues, we don't have to sit around wondering what the answer is, because we have something and someone to consult to figure it out. When the world asks us how we feel about abortion, we can can say that we believe in the sanctity of life, That all people are born in the image of God and deserve a chance at life. When the world asks us what our belief is uh, when it comes to helping and taking care of the poor and needy, we can say that it is our responsibility to care for their needs and help them to live better lives. When the world asks us what we believe about the LGBTQ movement, We can tell them that it is a corrupt worldview because the Bible says that men and women were created with a purposeful design which sin has only confused our culture about. Because our God is morally holy, we have answers to any moral question that our world can throw at us. God has established righteousness in this world and we never have to be confused about it again. Now finally, let's look at the final verses of our passage. Picking back up in verse 6, it says this. It says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was also among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statue that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Finally, we see here in this last section of the psalm that our God is mercifully holy. Just like our previous sections, the last couple of verses are filled with Old Testament allusions, calling back to multiple major characters with one commonality in mind. These men are people who called upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord listened to them. But the thing about these individuals is that they were not perfect in themselves. Whenever we hear about important biblical figures who aren't Jesus, we can immediately idolize them and think of them as being without sin themselves. That makes God's answering of their prayers merciful because he mercifully answered them in spite of their sins. 
The characters that the psalmist uses here are that of Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. Again, let's quickly look back at these stories and see what the author is talking about when he is mentioning them. So Moses was the leader of Israel during the Exodus and through the 40 years of wandering in the desert before entering into the promised land. Moses' sin is recorded in Numbers 20 when he struck the the rock for water to come out of it, disobeying God's command to simply tell the water to come forth from it. Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, was one of the first priests of Israel and helped build the golden calf in Exodus 32. Samuel, though a little bit more difficult to find his sin than the first two, sinned in 1 Samuel chapter 15, when Samuel yielded to Psalm's request to worship with him, even though he knew it was wrong to worship with him after Saul's sin. All three of these men, being great and mighty figures in scripture, all have documented sins written in the same book. But our Lord still answered them. He was forgiving God because they had continued to follow him. They had continued to follow God despite their wrongdoings. God did not simply ignore their sins and overlook them as a corrupt judge would. The last line of verse 8 of Psalm 99 assures us that our God is an avenger of their wrongdoings. Their sins would still need to be atoned for. And they were on the day of atonement each year. But the principle stands that God answers those who call upon his name, even if they are sinners. What a wonderful truth we have right here in front of us. If these men could be answered by the Lord, even though they were sinners then we as the people of God can come before the Lord in confidence, knowing that he will listen to our prayers. We are just like these men in the fact that we are sinners just like they were. There are times in our everyday lives where we choose to honor ourselves instead of God, pushing him out of the place of Lord of our life and instead placing ourselves there. Because we are living east of Eden. Because we are living in a world marred by sin. We must recognize that this is a reality that we face on a day-to-day basis. But what is so amazing is that that is only half of the story. As Christians, we have a perfect Savior who is currently interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. Jesus Christ, who came and died for our sins, has given us reconciliation to God that we may join together with him. At that time, we will no longer be separated from him because he is holy, but we will be joined together with him because we will also be holy. Christ's death not only gives us reconciliation to God, but also gives us access to Christ's righteousness through imputation. As we come to the Lord, we are joined together with him and experience complete union with Christ. 
the holiness that Christ has no longer separates us, but joins us together. God's merciful holiness not only means that he hears our prayers, but also that he saves us from our sin and reconciles us to him. Praise God for his merciful holiness. So Christian, I'd like to encourage you tonight to have confidence in your prayers. When you come to the Lord with a humble heart, pray with vigor, knowing that our God is listening. Pray for those around you who need comfort or care. Intercede for them before the Lord and ask for their deliverance in their lives. Uh, He will listen. Pray for the non-Christians in your lives that are far away from God's kingdom. That the Lord will reveal himself to them and pull them out of the darkness. He will listen. Pray for for your own problems in your life. Cry out to the Lord as many of the psalmists do in lament as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Our God is with you on that journey. He is listening. And finally, remember the first time that you cried out to the Lord in repentance, asking for forgiveness from your sins. At that point, our God had saved you and regenerated your heart. He had brought you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Our God listened to you. He delivered you and he saved you. And this is because our God is mercifully holy. Now, I just want to say one more thing before we finish. If you do not know our God in this way, then it isn't too late to cry out for deliverance. Our God listens and forgives, so do not be be afraid to come before him and ask for forgiveness. The Lord has saved so many of us out of darkness because of his graciousness. So turn away from your sin and come before the foot of the cross. Ask for forgiveness from our listening God. He is majestically, morally, and mercifully holy, and he will listen to you if you come before him. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you and praise you because of your holiness. Lord, you are set apart in so many ways, and we thank you that you have not stayed set apart from us forever. You have worked throughout the entirety of history, sovereignly watching over everything and moving in everything so that we could be here today worshiping you. Thank you for pulling us out of the darkness and showing us a glimpse of your holiness. We ask that you'll continue to show us more of your holiness as we grow closer to you. Reveal yourself to us through the study of your scripture And help us to know you more so that we may honor you as the one and only holy God. Help us to be conformed to the image of your Son so that we may love you and love the things of you. So that we may share the good news of your gospel to the world around us. Lord, we love you. 
We thank you and we praise you for your holiness. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now before we come together at the communion table in just a couple of minutes, let us stand together and sing a hymn of God's holiness.